Their number is growing, and while they are still the vast minority, their influence in schools, universities, and media is strong. We're talking about the new atheists. And today, we have some questions for those who believe that God does not exist. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. Dr. Zuckerman is an author, speaker, and scholar who discusses everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. These are spiritual and cultural topics of interest to all of us, so we think you'll get a lot out of this program. And our website, evidenceandanswers.org, has past radio shows you may have missed, interviews with leading scholars and experts, Pat's books and articles, and multiple resources to explore. So check it out today, evidenceandanswers.org. Today, Pat discusses that many who don't believe God exists are very active in trying to spread their beliefs, or lack of belief, as they often put it. In that case, there are some questions they may find rather disturbing. Let's go to Dr. Pat Zuckerman speaking before an audience with part two of Questions Atheists Fear. So what's the most reasonable conclusion? That the universe was eternal? That the universe comes from nothing? Or that something greater than the universe caused the universe? Which one is the most reasonable conclusion? To say the universe comes from nothing without a cause, guess what? That's a tremendous statement of faith. That's a tremendous amount of faith you're exercising there. You know, that's why I'm not an atheist. Hey, I don't have faith to be an atheist. Hey, I was talking to my cousin who has a... Uh, PhD in physics, uh, one of the most brilliant guys I know, the genius of our family. For those of you with tattoos that you want to get rid of or have gotten rid of, that laser tattoo removal, that's invented by Zuckerman, okay, my cousin. And he's a physicist, and I said, what explains the origin of the universe? If God doesn't exist, it's one of these two. And he thought about it for a while. Finally said, the law of cause and effect. Now, you're a physicist, you know this. We got him one step closer. A few years ago, he was a devout atheist. Now he calls himself omni-religious man. All right? Omni-religious man. He believes in all religions. He doesn't reject all of them now. He believes in all of them. So we got him one step closer. Got to move him to the next step. But what is the most reasonable conclusion for the origin and existence of the universe? That's question number two. Question number three. How do you explain the apparent design in the universe? The more and more we study about the universe, and this is what you're going to have to teach your young people, as they get exposed to the sciences, more and more we study the universe, the more and more we see what? Order and apparent design. There's irreducible complexity and specified complexity. I'll talk about those two some other time. But there seems to be great complexity, but great design, and design for a particular purpose. How do you explain the apparent design in the universe? How does one account for the appearance of design in, in living things? Richard Dawkins, he wrote the best-selling book, The God Delusion. He is the champion for the new atheists. The new atheist movement, very aggressive, highly evangelistic atheist group. And he's their spokesman, a biology professor from Oxford University. And he said this, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Um, you know, design points to what? A designer. That's the most reasonable conclusion. Dr. Francis Collins, leader of the Human Genome Project, a million dollar program funded by our United States government after he mapped out the human genome, the gene sequence in human beings, 
he came to the conclusion that the DNA code in the cells of our body is one of the most powerful proofs for the existence of an intelligent designer. And at a speech standing next to Bill Clinton, he said, now we, we can see the original language of God. And he wrote a book, a great book on that, called The Language of God. Here's one of the top scientists who studied human DNA and came to the conclusion that the DNA code is like a very complex computer code, a very complex kind of language. And he came to conclude it's probably one of the strongest evidences of design and an intelligent creator. The highly complex informational code conveys intelligent design. A molecular biologist used language terms, code, translation, transcription to describe what it does and how it acts. When you see language, complex letters put together for a particular purpose to communicate some kind of information points to an intelligent designer. Communication engineers and information scientists say you can't have a code without a code maker. So DNA is probably one of the strongest indicators in our world that there's an intelligent designer behind its existence. The program behind Microsoft Windows, if all the digits were to be printed out on paper, it'd just be hundreds of pages long. Or, or if it was just to print it out on a big roll sheet, you know, I'd roll it out, go past the door, past the parking lot. It's just a long, complex program. Yet those digits have to be in precise order. Just get a few of them out of order and the program doesn't work. Well, that's what DNA is like. Richard Dawkins, once again, leading spokesman for the atheists, biology professor at Oxford, says the machine code of the genes is uncannily computer-like. The pages of a molecular biology journal might be interchanged with those of a computer engineering journal. You know what? Intelligence, design, points to a intelligent designer points to a personal being who is very intelligent. We see design throughout the universe, in our solar system, in all parts of the universe, someday we'll talk about it, in biological systems, even in the human body. Carl Sagan, the atheist, many of us grew up watching his particular video, and he said this, the brain is a very big place in a very small space. The neurochemistry of the brain is astonishingly busy. The circuitry of a machine more wonderful than any devised by humans. And the human brain, it's only about four pounds up here in our head. We still have not designed a computer, supercomputer, that can do what the human brain can do. These supercomputers, they're huge, huge things. Yet the brain, just a small little four-pound little organ here, and we still have yet to create a supercomputer that can do what the human brain can do. Let me give you an example. I go jogging early in the morning at Kailua Beach sometimes, and sometimes there's nobody there on the beach. Now, if you're jogging on the beach at Kailua early in the morning, and there's nobody on the beach, and you run across this scribbled in the sand, it says, I love you. What do you conclude? What's the most reasonable conclusion to conclude here? Hmm? Would you conclude, you know what? The wind and the waves and the rain created I love you. Is that what you conclude? Now, is that possible? 
possible. But what are the odds of that? What are the odds that the wind and rain and natural forces could create this sentence, I love you? Man, the odds of that would be pretty astronomical, wouldn't it? What's more reasonable? Well, a more reasonable conclusion is someone came along and scribbled that on the beach. An intelligent mind came and put that together. Why, there's complexity and there's design. You wouldn't even conclude sand crabs were looking for a food and they ended up digging that up. Right? What's the most reasonable conclusion? Well, an intelligent mind put that there. How much more something like the human brain? How much more like DNA? Reasonably conclude intelligence was behind I love you scribbled on the sand. How much more something like a machine like the human body? Or the way our solar system is put together? That's the next question. How do you explain life's apparent intelligent design? Which one requires more faith to believe this could come about by chance and natural forces? Or that intelligent mind came and scribbled that on the beach? Which one requires more faith? I think it's the first one. That's why I'm not an atheist. I don't have enough faith. Design points to an intelligent designer. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Proper teaching of the sciences should point us to what? A creator. Studying the creation should be pointing us to the creator. In fact, the modern sciences were started by men who, wanted, who all believed in God, who wanted to unravel the mystery of the Creator's design of this earth and the universe. The Bible provides an intelligent and reasonable answer to the question, how do we explain the apparent design in the universe? Question number four, how did life originate? How did we get life from non-life? How can a universe of mindless matter produce living, intelligent, self-conscious beings? Now, the atheist is going to have to conclude what? That this can be explained through Darwin's theory of evolution. One of the major flaws of Darwin's theory of evolution is what? There are no plausible naturalistic theories or evidence demonstrating that life came from non-life. There's several myths out there, but there's no plausible explanation or plausible evidence that shows life could come from non-life. The Uri Miller experiment, that's for another time. They made this atmosphere, filled it with gases, you know, and shot it through with uh, electrical volts and supposedly created molecular compounds that could form some kind of protein. That's a flawed experiment. But we were taught in college, ah, that's a proof. Uh-uh. Numerous articles have been written on that. There's no evidence or plausible naturalistic theory demonstrating that life could come from non-life. In fact, Anthony Flew, who died, I think, last year, but was perhaps the greatest atheist philosopher of our time. He's a man who debated C.S. Lewis. Uh, for those of us in apologetics, when you're talking about having to answer some of the arguments out there, you always had to answer David Hume, and you had to answer this guy, Anthony Flew. Well, Anthony Flew, before he died, became a theist. 
Okay, not a Christian, but a man who came to believe in God. And I interviewed Marguerite, a man who wrote the official autobiography, or biography rather, of Anthony Flew. Every page was signed by Anthony Flew. Great book. It's called There Is a God. And how the most notorious atheists came to believe in God. This is like Billy Graham converting to Islam. That's how devastating it was for the atheists. I mean, this man is a titan amongst the atheists. He is the tower of power of the atheists. And for him to acknowledge that there is a God was devastating to the atheists. There's three key questions that Anthony Flew asked and did not find any evidence for. One of them was, how did life come from non-life? And he concluded this, Darwin saw that there was a problem with the origin of life. It is simply out of the question that the first living matter evolved out of dead matter and then developed into an extraordinary complicated creature of which we have no examples. There must have been some intelligence. And Anthony Flew did what gave us a great example that we all must follow. Follow the evidence wherever it leads, even if it leads to conclusions you don't like. And this man lived it out and... In the end, he acknowledged there must be an intelligent creator. This quote from one of the greatest atheists of all time. Because there's no evidence of life coming from non-life, the atheist camp has had to scramble and try to find some kind of explanation. Here's a clip from the movie Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, Ben Stein. Uh, you may remember him from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He's got the real monotone voice, right? He's the host of that. He's interviewing Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is the leading spokesman for the New Atheists, and he's asking Richard Dawkins, all right, then tell me, how did life begin? How did life come from non-life? And let's see what perhaps the great, the number one atheist, biologist, spokesman for the New Atheist Movement says in answer to this very question. What does he say? Let's take a look. That I wondered if he would be willing to put a number on it. Well, it's hard to put a figure on it, but, but I, I, I mean, I'd put it as something like, you know, 99% against or something. Well, how do you know it's 99% against, say, in 97 No, I did, you asked me to put a figure on it, and I, it, I'm not comfortable putting a figure on it. I think it's, I, I just think it's very unlikely. What? But you couldn't put a number on it? No, of course not. So it, it could would be, be 49%? Well, I, it would be, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's unlikely, but, but I, but, and it's, quite far from 50%. How do you know? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I put an argument in the book. Well, then who did create the heavens and the earth? Why do you use the word who? You see, you, you, you immediately beg the question by using the word who. Well, then how did it get created? Well, um, by a very slow process. Well, how did it start? Nobody knows how, how it started. We know the kind of event that it must have been. We know the sort of event that, that must have happened for the origin of life. And what was that? It was the origin of the first self-replicating molecule. Right, and how did that happen? I told you, we don't know. So you have no idea how it started? No, 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 no nor has anybody. Nor has anyone else. What do you think is the possibility that, there, that intelligent design might turn out to be uh, the answer to some issues in uh, genetics or in, well, in evolution? It could come about in the following way. It could be that uh, at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization e evolved by probably some kind of Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology. 
and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this, this planet. Um, now, th that is a possibility and an intriguing possibility. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the, um, at the detail, details of biochemistry, molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. Wait a second. Richard Dawkins thought intelligent design might be a legitimate pursuit? Um, and that designer could well be a higher intelligence from elsewhere in the universe. Well, but that I'm... higher intelligence would itself have had to have come about by some explicable or ultimately explicable process. It couldn't have just jumped into existence spontaneously. That's the point. So Professor Dawkins was not against intelligent design, just certain types of designers, such as God. <laughs> All right. See, there's no evidence or plausible explanation by naturalistic means we could have got life from non-life. And for this reason, as you saw Richard Dawkins there, he had to suggest that maybe aliens came and started life here upon this earth. But then it just pushes the question one step back. How those aliens get there? Now, how did life get started? There's really no answer for that one. Genesis 1 describes that God created everything in its vast diversity on earth, plants, animals, even human beings. Okay, so isn't it amazing that the first chapter of the Bible can explain what modern naturalistic science fails to do? And our final question here, question number five, what explains our sense of right and wrong? How can you define good and evil without God? Romans 2 talks about that within all of us is an embedded moral law code given to us by a moral lawgiver. Our intuitive sense of right and wrong argues for an external, absolute, and objective moral standard of good. Even children have that sense of right and wrong. Where does it come from? Where does it come from? Certain values can be found in all cultures. Adultery is wrong in all cultures. Murder is wrong in all cultures. Rape is wrong in all cultures. And molesting children is wrong in all cultures. I mean, where does this innate sense of right and wrong come from? There is a universal moral law held in every culture. Where does that come from? A moral law must come from a moral lawgiver. Great C.S. Lewis said this, As an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe to when I called it unjust? Saying that something is evil shows you that there's an absolute standard of good from which we have departed. Where does that absolute standard come from? It must come from a moral, intelligent being. Immanuel Kant. Philosophy crosses at Immanuel Kant. If you read his stuff, you can't understand it. All right? But uh, philosophy crosses at Immanuel Kant. He went out to try, but he failed, attempt to show that all the classical arguments for the existence of God all fail. Of course, his argument particularly failed. But he said this, Two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe. The oftener and more steadily we reflect on them. The starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. Kant said a moral law, a universal moral law within all of us 
points to a moral lawgiver. One of the questions you've got to ask, where does our sense of right and wrong come from? In fact, in numerous discussions with the atheists, number one challenge they bring up against Christians is what? There's a good and loving God, why is there evil and suffering in the world? You get that question in one form or another, but you know what? It boomerangs back and hits them right in the head because it's another proof of the existence of God. I was having a debate on the radio with a young man who has the number one atheist website out there right now. And we were having a debate. His name was Luke. And Luke said, all right, I got, you know, we're going down, having a great discussion. He said, all right, I got this question for you. If God exists, why are so many babies born with so many birth defects and live a life, a meaningless life of pain and suffering? If God exists, how do you answer that? And the host said, well, Pat, how do you answer that? And I said, that's only a problem if God exists. It's only a problem if God exists. If God doesn't exist, that's just a process of natural evolution. Why is that evil? How do you define evil? Why is that bad? And he said, well, you know, uh, because it hinders the progress of human evolution. And I said, so? I said, we're, we're here in a meaningless existence anyway. Our ultimate end is extinction. What does it matter? You know, I said, it's only a problem if God exists. And I said, Luke, um, you can't call something evil unless there's an absolute standard of moral good from which we have departed. Where did you get that absolute moral standard from? Points to a moral lawgiver. And he was quiet for a moment there. And I said, here's your message of hope to this person. Luke, this is what you would have to say to him. Brother, sister, sorry for all your pain and suffering, but you live ultimately a meaningless life. You know what? Your suffering is ultimately meaningless as well. And one day you're going to die and be extinct. And that's the end of it. And your suffering and everything was meaningless anyway. And that's the message of hope I have for you. I said, what kind of message is that? And he turned around and said, well, what kind of message can you give him then? And I said, well, here's the message that I can give him. That the God of the universe enters in your pain and suffering. He understands it. He went through it himself. He didn't sit on the sidelines and say, oh, you poor thing. He entered into our suffering and suffered on a along with us, most excruciating death, he understands. And who's to say your life is meaningless? Who's to say that? I said, I know a lot of people who are handicapped, who have had a tremendous ministry. Johnny Erickson Tata, quadriplegic, incredible ministry that she has, more than she could have ever had had she been fully able. Charlie Wiedemeyer, graduate from Punahou here, coached a team and he, could, he was paralyzed in a wheelchair. The way he coached his team was through his wife. He had to whisper into his wife's ear, and his wife would yell out the plays. Tremendous inspiration. You know, Helen Keller, we can go on. Talk to uh, David Tamala there, who adopts those kinds of children. Who says they live meaningless kinds of lives? Hey, who's to say that? Hey, you can if, if you're an atheist. If you're an atheist, all life is meaningless. And who say their life is meaningless. People who have tremendous ministries in our handicap, greater than I will ever have. And you know what? That's not the end. Because one day what? They're going to receive a glorified body. Death and disease will be gone. Physical ailments will be gone. They'll receive a glorified body, full and renewed. 
And so their life here is not the end. There's a greater future that awaits for them. And I said, Luke, that is a message of hope that I can bring that the atheists cannot. And he looked and he said, well, that's just pie in the sky. That's false hope. And I said, no, I know that's real because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here are five questions that you can ask your atheist friends. And the five questions are effective because it shows the flaws in the atheist worldview and gives you an open door to share the truth of the Christian worldview that God does exist. We're created for a purpose. And our goal is to know our Creator, to love Him, to enjoy Him forever, and to fulfill the mission for which He has designed us uh, to accomplish. Five questions. What is the meaning of life? What explains the origin of the universe? How do we explain the design in the universe? How did life come from non-life? And how do we explain our sense of right and wrong? When you develop the skill to ask these kinds of good questions, it will open a lot of doors for great discussions with your atheist friends. Thank you so much for being here and joining us on Evidence and Answers with Pan Zuccarin. And by the way, if you missed any part of this program today or you would like to send it to friends and family, it's available right now for download at evidenceandanswers.org. Go there and browse audio, articles, and other resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. And if we've been a blessing to you or given you some good information, please consider supporting us financially. Pat raises his own support for Evidence and Answers, and we so appreciate whatever gift you can give. You'll help keep us on the air and online with some really good news and the evidence to back it up. Just click the Donate button at evidenceandanswers.org. We would be so encouraged to hear from you today. So go online, evidenceandanswers.org.